0: Good. Let's have a look at the second domain of the teachings and grasping. Ditti Upadana. Aditi is an interesting thing. The word comes from the verb to see, and Aditi is. A view pretty much. In uh, the Pali language the emphasis of the term is on the act of viewing. It is something we do. Yeah, please.
1: Really
0: Diti upadana. Thank you. Yeah. Or ditupadana technically. Um, coming from the word grasping, upadana, the word ditti for view. View, I understand in English to mean has a more objective quality to it than it has in Pali. In Pali, the um, a view is acknowledged to be an act. This is something we do. It is not a piece of objective reality we meet. It is a, a view is something we have taken. So the acknowledgment that, that we create views, that we generate views, that views are based on perceptions and uh, other cognitive processes is is more overtly acknowledged in Pali than I think the English word view uh, conveys. The ditty of ditty upadana if we want to look for that in today's language, it goes by many names. It goes by the name of theory, opinion, take, ideology. Um, it goes by... It covers everything from the darkest superstition to the most um, elevated, mystical intuition you may hold. Yeah. It speaks of a pre-configuration of our approach to something. Some of these views they come about through reflection, some of them come about through what we have learned from others, some of it comes from what we have inferred, yeah. uh, as in hypotheses. some of it is simply due to our lack of proper investigation.
2: Yeah.
0: I, my understanding is that you know, we, we overemphasize the views that we have espoused as, as conscious ideologies. Obviously, there are many such views and people attached to those views. You know, they, they go communist or they go violently anti-communist. They go collectivist or they go individualist. Or You know, there's many such views people have espoused historically and generally defended. And um, there has been a fair amount of bloodbath in the names of various ideologies. But the majority of the views I believe we suffer under are not views we have actually consciously adopted the majority of views we seem to suffer under and clandestinely attached to are views we have basically taken up with mother's milk. Yeah? It's the views of our subculture, it's the views of our families, it's the views of our particular, um, you know, the area we've grown up in, and views we have never consciously acknowledged as views. Most of these views you only meet when you meet other people who don't share those views. And then, and then you, you experience some kind of shock. It's like there are views that sit under the surface of the water like a reef. Yeah? And you only know that it's there when you hit it. Yeah? When your boat kind of sailing across happily suddenly hits the rock underneath the surface. And then you notice you've hit a view. And usually there is some irrational response, or it is the irrational response that makes us often aware of the grasping at such a view. Because in the degree of irrational, um, in the degree of the irrationality of our response to somebody not holding what we expect to be just common sense or just normal or the reasonable thing to do or just being a normal human being. What we come across then is some a, a fruit of our grasping. We get shocked. We get annoyed. We feel disturbed by. Uh, we feel that something we have invested in, maybe quietly without ever acknowledging to ourselves that this has happened, we've invested in a particular take on reality. And suddenly we find um, this is not shared by some of our fellow human beings. The Buddha makes a distinction between what he calls right views and wrong views, which uh, the commentaries then go about telling us that basically attachment to wrong views is a problem. And then they list all the wrong views generally of other spiritual practitioners at the, at, at the time of the Buddha, as you can uh, surmise. Yeah? Implicit is, you know, we have the right views, they have the wrong views. Attachment to views basically is the problem with people who attach to wrong views. Which, uh, I have a suspicion, is not what the Buddha meant. I've named a couple of uh, views he felt particularly pernicious. Uh, the, The denial of causality, the denial of the fruit of ethical living, the denial of... A dependency on parents, for example, the of, the denial of the possibility of liberation. Uh, such things he felt uh, is particularly pernicious because it stultifies our uh, motivation to undertake spiritual practices and grow. Um, unfortunately, also right views can be attached to and have, bring about suffering. If you have the choice between a right view and a wrong view, by all means, uh, attach to the right view. Mm-hmm. If you have a choice to uh, hold a right view or attach to a right view, do just simply hold it rather than attach to it. So it's a graduation there. Consider views is a, it's a natural tendency of the mind to understand things in terms of a story. This is the nature of mind. We are interested in the narrative of something. Yes, we want to taste the strawberry, but then we want a story. Where does it come from? How much does it cost? Is it organic? Who do? How do they look like? Who plant the stuff? Was it originally grown there, or was it important? Uh, can I get it next year? Is is you know this kind of thing? We want a story. What what can I do with it? Does it taste as good as the one I have last tasted? with whom have I sat last and ate in one of them. You know, we want a story. We're not content with simply enjoying our senses as we might think of the first type of grasping. We actually want a story. This storytelling mind has its origin in, um, well, later Buddhist teaching speaks of the awakening nature of mind. There's something in us that wants to grow up that is intrinsically curious and wants to learn. It's very difficult to keep human beings stupid. Many attempts have been made. uh, Interim, remarkably successful attempts but on the long run basically human beings want to learn and it's very difficult to keep us stupid. We are very curious, we're inquisitive and we start adding up things. If it hurts long enough and if we live with something long enough we begin to figure things out. Maybe not as quick as we would like, but we definitely have a tendency of learning. And learning is a process which makes things suddenly irreversible. There is a point when our learning brings us to um, a moment that we can no longer pretend of not knowing. We can no longer pretend innocence on account if we have learned (coughs) enough. We can no longer pretend that it's not happening or that we don't know. So the mind that wants a story, that looks for meaning, that tries to figure out connections, is basically the very same mind that wants to wake up. The storytelling mind, which you get in your meditation efforts, you know, which is called uh, discursive thinking, and is rated as a distraction is nothing else but the degenerative form of that very same mind that is geared to awakening. So meaning is precious to us. We seek for meaning. We not just seek actual experiences, we seek also to connect the dots. We seek to create the meaning out of the experiences we have. Pleasant ones or unpleasant ones. We we try to create meaning. This is a very, very deep-seated trait in our mind. So part of that <clears throat> leads us to understanding, degrees of understanding. And things we have understood or we believe to have understood, we invest in. We like to convince others of it. We like to be seen as having understood this. Yeah. If it has helped us, we wish that others also benefit from it. If we think we have found a crucial piece of meaning in a particular experience, we'd like to share that. There's nothing bad in that. The problem is, if we meet people who don't share that, that's where the grasping becomes manifest. Do we just get evangelical? Or do we actively pursue uh, these people being locked up, or declared mad, or uh, put in prison or somewhere? Do we try to overtly convince them? How violent are we prepared to uh, be in our efforts to convince other people of our, of our rightness? The security and the kick we get out of Dityupadana is this about being right and about being competent. It is the sense that I know what's happening and I'm in charge. And this is a great, greatly attractive thing in a world in which we all too well know that we're not in charge. <clears throat> in a world <clears throat> in which we can very easily prove to ourselves that we are actually not having a clue. There's so many more things that we don't understand than we do understand. I don't even know how a, a light bulb works, to be honest with you. You know, I can, I can spew up the sort of stuff I've learned in my physics uh, classes, uh, alternating currents, carbon thread, and this kind of thing. But I don't really tweak how it works. Yeah? Really deep down, I don't. And um, with things that are more complicated than a light bulb, it gets worse. You know, I don't really know how my metabolism works. I have some experiential understanding of it after over 50 years, but basically, I don't know how it works. I don't know how enzymes really work. So wherever I turn, I am surrounded by a complexity I don't truly understand. I fiddle with machines, I press buttons, I pull levers, I move through spaces, I entrust my life to metal tubes that fly me over the Atlantic. But basically, I have no clue how this all works. And I would suspect it's similar to you. It's similar for you. We, We are engulfed in complexities that we cannot handle. Very, very few people in, every, in in any specific field really know how something works. I sometimes think that this was different, 300 years ago, 250 years ago. You know, a guy like <clears throat> Goethe, who was a very gifted writer but also a gifted natural scientist, he was surrounded by tools he could understand. You know, he knew how a petroleum lantern operated and he knew how, uh, you know, uh, what do you call these things? Compass? Compass operates and thing. But th- this is different for us now. So we have views and these views are based on perceptions and these perceptions are based upon uh, how we make sense of the world and what preconceptions we have framed what we currently experience. and. A lot of that is fluid. Much of what I have adopted as a view doesn't really hold, or it holds for a particular time, but then it becomes obsolete, and then a little later it becomes positively wrong. At some point, I should have changed that view, but I haven't. And I end up with believing something that isn't true, or operating by a premise that is outdated at best. It has worked when I was three years old, but somehow it doesn't do the same job anymore. Our attachment to views creates an apparent certainty because in a world that changes, being competent, being right, and being in the know creates a psychological sense of safety. The kick is the psychological sense of safety. Most of the views we hold do not actually have to be accurate we don't actually put them to test we just surf on the psychological kick of feeling good about ourselves because we believe to know something that's my firm belief that is my firm view on on the reason and the nature of views uh, i'm willing to have that tested uh, but uh, I probably won't let go of that one before I have had some convincing other theory about the nature of views. Yeah. Human, you don't need to be an intellectual to invest in views and to attach to views. Uh, some, of the, um, some of the most adamant views I have encountered amongst people who by no standards or by any standards couldn't be called intellectuals. Yeah. So just because you don't have a university degree uh, or don't have the degree you wish you had... You uh, that doesn't exempt you from holding views. Yeah. Some views are quite difficult to uproot. I remember I lived in Thailand for a number of years, and uh, in certain areas you still have malaria there. And um, Thailand is a very good medical. Uh, you know they've got polyclinics and they've got excellent doctors. They've got fabulously big hospitals. They've got a number of American private clinics and so forth. Um, there's plenty of medical excellence in that country, but there's still a number of people who adamantly believe that malaria comes from bad water. It's very clear where malaria f- comes from. It's a, it's a parasite. It is transported by the, femalis, by the female of a particular mosquito called anopheles, and she injects... Uh, substance into your body when trying to take your blood so that the blood runs more smoothly and that you don't feel that she's there and has been peeking you. Uh, She injects something and in that inject there is the parasite that causes malaria. This is very well known. But there are still plenty of people who believe that malaria comes from bad water, which is not true, evidently not true. And It would be very easy to disprove that. But to disprove it, you need to make some sort of effort. And that effort, many people shy away from. It's easier to hold on to a wrong view than to make the effort to actually figure out what is a more accurate view. You may still end up with another view, which is not entirely true, but it may be A, disprove your current view, and B, be more accurate, at least for some time. Yes, please. Yeah, it's obvious that one can construe connections, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the mosquito doesn't just need bad water. It yeah? <laughs> um, needs also infected people. It needs a carrier animal, and it needs a certain, um, what's the word, distance to the potential victim of the malaria parasite. Um, so views are convenient, not because they're accurate, but because they give us a sense of certainty. And views have many names. Myths, theories, ideologies, um, the current state of, you know, the, the leading edge of our natural sciences has the current view that, you know, uh, the mind is in the brain or the brain is in the mind or that this or that illness is uh, hereditary or is conditioned by socialization or... You know, if you look, views change quite dramatically in many fields. And yet we keep having a lot of confidence in views. How to rear children and how to educate people, where to spend their money on, what programs, which sort of people, what needs, what's the biggest danger. And if you look back a few years, it is quite hilarious to see what people have, who policymakers have believed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. So views are very evident in, in all our lives. So the Buddha suggests that we make distinctions it's unlikely that we give up trying to make a good story out of what we experience. But it is useful to find a way to end up with a story that gives us a chance to grow. So the Buddha suggests that we adopt views that are of such a nature that we grow more easily, rather than stories in which we have no chance of growing, stories which always end bad, and stories in which we are powerless. So how would it look, or better, how has it looked when you last found out about views, when you met your own views, when you met the views of others, which you felt you just touch into a belief system there? You're trying to be with somebody, to talk with somebody, to come to terms with somebody and you just meet a belief system. What helps when we um, wish to diminish our degree of grasping and clinging to an identification with views, opinions, theories, considering that so many things that our self-construct based on being certain that we know that we have the right take on something is a very vulnerable position and that we um, lay ourselves open to uh, considerable suffering when our view particularly our view about ourselves, is not affirmed by others when we meet other people's stories and other people's takes we may feel frustrated we may feel ill understood. We may feel invalidated to the degree we have identified with the view. When that view is being disagreed with, we are being disagreed with. And I understand that public humiliation is the thing that we most fear. You know, I think it's Jack Kornfield who makes that little joke that um, people say... Uh, what they're most afraid of you know and and death ranks about on position 5 or so yeah. and on position 1 is public speaking or anything which could make you could make a public fool of yourself so the more we have identified with a particular view a particular theory a particular ideology a particular understanding the more we have grasped at that the more we are destroyed when that view is not affirmed. So I'd like to hear from you what you think and what you know maybe is helpful in terms of reflections and in terms of virtues as we did before. Yeah, please.
3: Um, speaking of cornfield, I like his little, his little quip, it's, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't know exactly that um, you know when I go home and I tell my parents I'm a Buddhist they're you know, very upset but when I'm a Buddha, you know, all is well. Something like that. Um, So, and I come across like all kinds of people who are Buddhists or, you know, some kind of label, but they don't, you know, necessarily put that label on themselves or, or let people know that they're that kind of person. They kind of just show it by their compassion or by their just way of being. And in that sense, it's You know, kind of breaks down the barriers. I think, at Hmm. least from your, at least from your own point of view. So, just kind of breaking down the labels in your head and realizing the duality of things and how much it separates us.
0: How do you do that?
3: Meditate. (laughs) I don't know. Um, You just. You just you can study you can look at the wars that have happened and the conflicts that have created and how much torture and deaths have been caused from from you know religious war and the fact that you know we're different and 911 and terrorists and republicans and democrats and how much suffering that's caused in the in the senate and newspaper i mean it's endless <laughs> right i mean i don't i don't really know have a concrete answer, though.
0: So you, if I get that correct, you recall the amount of suffering that has come out directly of views that have, been served, that have served as positions for people. Yeah? Would you feel that does justice, what you said? The kind of trench warfare mentality, the sort of fortified this is my take. Don't confuse me with other facts, you know. Good. We need to find a a key word for this. Willingness to investigate, maybe. Yes, please. A
4: reflection is to... A way to work with this, in my own experience, is to to actively seek out other people's the way that other people understand things. Okay. Um, traveling is one way of doing that, but just asking people and you mean trying spe- to hear, S-
0: speaking with the enemy, kind of thing.
4: Listening. <laughs> yeah, listening to the enemy, but but but. I mean, I did, it's not usually, it's not often so black and white, right? Yeah, it's yeah. often much more gradation yeah. in terms of how people who sit in different chairs might look at the same issue.
0: So, how could we phrase that? Looking for diversity in uh,
4: I, or inclusivity? Oop. Yeah, kind or. of an inclusivity of of views.
5: Uh-huh.
6: Um, in in a kind of listening, listen for what's right in what the other person's saying, which seems so radical.
7: Oh, okay, okay,
0: that's an interesting. We should put that down under under virtues. Listening for what's right in what the other is saying, and I think we, I, I'm I'm struck by what you said. The active part I liked, you know. And not just kind of begrudgingly tolerating their existence. If they have to be here, you know, might as well, you know, give them a, a right to speak, but actually seeking out other points of view, if I understood you correctly. And, and, um, and doing that in a sort of willing way rather than in a, okay, fair enough, I listen if, if I can't go away anymore. How would we call this? Curiosity. Curiosity. Good.
1: Good, thank you. Um, compassion. And I, I'll explain why. Um, my father is a racist. Um, one of my best friends is a sex addict. And uh, we clash on views as to, you know, every time I, I hear a comment about my father, I'm like, wow, like, how can you say that? Um, because he, he married a Japanese woman, so it's like, you know, we're all, I'm all mixed or um, my friend who's so into enjoying sex with whatever he can whoever he can find and so drawn to beauty and experiencing all that which is promiscuous in, is against my views but the way I connect with them and I still love them is compassion because I know that those views are coming from a place of pain and suffering and in that sense they're causing more suffering but mm-hmm. if I understand that with a compassionate heart, then I can still love them.
0: Mm-hmm. So we put compassion there on the virtues. And particularly the compassionate understanding that people act the way they act because of forms of pain, isn't it? That, that is a profound insight. Many people who create suffering for other people are deeply suffering. It's generally the ones who suffer that make other people's life miserable. It's generally not the ones who are happy. There are exceptions, but on the whole it's the ones who suffer that make other people suffering. And once you get in touch with the suffering beneath the particular view, when you realize that this is a defensive view basically because there's so much pain there that this person defends against, you don't validate the view, but somehow you you get in touch with the pain there. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Um, growing, I don't
8: know, for myself. I feel like I need to grow my capacity to withstand other people's pain and suffering, or ill will, anger. Uh, because a lot of times it just comes at you whenever you know uh-huh. if somebody else is suffering. Sometimes they just throw it at you.
0: Do, can you explain a little? Because at the first glance, this sounds like the exact opposite of compassion.
8: No, actually, it takes a tremendous amount of compassion to withstand pain and suffering.
0: Okay. It's,
8: especially if it's coming from somebody else.
0: You mean it is not the pain you? trying to become more resilient against but their reactiveness to their own pain and the way they act out in anger or in ignorance is that right what right, right yeah
8: so just having more capacity to withstand the other person's okay. reactive behavior yeah. you know uh, unskillful behavior whether it's anger hatred mm. uh aloud speaking uh et cetera. not not having enough space to not turn away. Because I know that a lot of times I'm so triggered by those kinds of uh, behaviors that I just want to go away.
0: So this is equanimity, isn't it? This is the classic virtue of uh, upeka, the capacity to withstand and hold or bear. Yes, please.
9: I think one of the most powerful reflections I've ever done that's been helpful for me on this is is actually a reflection on changes in my own self um, and actually investigating what did I believe when I was 10, when I was okay. 20, when I was 30, yeah, 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 when yeah. I was 40. And um, So you and do the biography of your own actually views. Actually yeah. doing and seeing and, hmm. and in that yeah. process yes. actually seeing... You know the way in which my own views change, Uh
7: and and
0: and that acknowledge development of one's own views. That's interesting. Yes, please, Elaine.
6: So um, I think it's Byron Katie that has these questions. That um, you know, is this true in terms of what I believe? Is this thought, is this view true? How do I know it's true? How do I feel when I think this? And then I think the last one is who would I be without this? And and okay. I find great that kind of good when I'm stuck in it or when I see that I might yes. be stuck in it. Is this true?
0: Yeah. Can we write that down? Just "Is this true?" quote unquote and "Who would I be without this view?" quote unquote. I think these are great questions.
5: Yeah. Yes, please. I think uh, a corollary of the last two as a virtue, is doubt. An interesting thing about doubt, which opens one to investigation and also to helps live with uncertainty, is that doubt can also shade off into becoming, as you know, as a psychotherapist, uh, to becoming a symptom and causing suffering. So wonder where that line gets crossed. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you frame that as a reflection or as a virtue? Doubt. Cartesian doubt. Okay. Essentially. How would it look if this wasn't true? Uh,
5: when doubt becomes uh, so chronic in the search for something absolute, then it becomes an obsessional
0: symptom. Yeah. But. As a little sort of corrosive to test one's certainties, it can be quite useful. Is that what you're saying? Yes.
10: Yeah.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The question I, the question that
4: I've been offered is, is sort of a corollary I think it's a corollary to that, which is, am I sure? Which is sort of like, is it true? Am I mm.
0: sure? Great. So I think there's a few more questions we can put in there. Am I sure is a good one, and I think we should add... Um, can we preface your doubt with Cartesian doubt? Would that be... It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's... Um, you know, there's some other forms of doubt which are a bit less um, constructive. Cartesian doubt. Uh, Cartesian doubt... Uh, Cartesius is the... Um, Latin name of a French philosopher, Descartes, a famous uh, Enlightenment philosopher, um, believing Christian, but he had uh, the sense he constructed, basically, the human mind as if this was a machine. And to understand how things work is to become God. Right? He was a very rigorous thinker, and he um, was not willing to accept um, an ontological god without reasonable proof of it. So he established, um, uh, he wrote a very famous book called Meditations. <laughs> and, and it was basically the, one of, one of the, the pillars of enlightenment thinking. Uh, investigative reason as the basis of under, deeper understanding. Yeah. And one of his methods is to question whereon a certainty rests. Yeah. What, is, what is it that makes me actually believe this? Yeah. So a profoundly investigative thinker. I, I can't really absolve him from a Buddhist point of view. He's lost the plot somewhere along the lines by my understanding. <laughs> But uh, as a developmental uh, figure in Western thinking, he is very indispensable. And I think uh, you meant by that that a doubt that is not obsessive, but a doubt that is methodical and systematic in inquiring what our certainties are are based upon. Do I do justice to this? Descartes
5: came to an end of doubt, which I think said, I think,
0: therefore, I am. Yeah. Yeah. But when is doubt a hindrance? Um, footnote here, yeah. Doubt is a hindrance if, A, we're unwilling to think things to an end. That's one of the things. That's one of the ways doubt can be a hindrance. Another is that doubt is then a hindrance when it is... Um, basically paralyzing. Doubt as a hindrance is basically an emotion. It is a question that I believe I'm not supposed to have. You know, there are many things that are questions I simply don't know. I can happily live without that. I don't know what I'm going to eat for breakfast tomorrow morning. It doesn't really work my system not to know that. But if I have a feeling I don't know whether I should live with that person or not, or whether i should whether i'm not sure what is right or wholesome and what is not then i get in trouble i lose my ability to act decisively i i lose my ability to trust my judgment i lose my ability to uh, give my confidence to people and to principles and particularly i lose my ability to make choices yeah and at that stage doubt is a, is a one of the most crippling of hindrances. Yeah. But what you have described is actually a sober, today this would go through as me, methodical inquiry, as good science, isn't it? What do we know? How do we know what we know? Is this foolproof? Yeah. How would it look if it wasn't true? Good footnote closed. Back to the views.
11: Uh, another one would be uh, openness uh, to the view the other person is expressing. I sometimes find that I have a view about something. Yep. Let's say politics, and I'm a Democrat, and if a Republican is saying something, my mu- I'm not even listening, and whatever is coming out of your mouth is stupid anyway. Yeah, yeah, I have uh, I have that feeling. <laughs> And I, I find that actually being open can probably make, help me see things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm going to necessarily join what they're saying, but just being open to yeah. uh, what the other person is saying. Okay. Open to understand.
0: So that would be a conscious decision in, in you to be making an effort to listen to people who basically by by your own tendencies you had written off before they had even opened their mouth.
11: Yes. Yeah. So seeking to understand, listening, seeking to understand what they're saying. So being open yeah. to what, yeah. uh, being open-minded, I, yeah. I suppose.
0: So I see some connection between what, to what you have said, isn't it? And both actively listening to people where you normally wouldn't go. Yeah, but going
11: beyond actively listening, being open to, not okay. to I have okay. listened, I've talked, <laughs> yeah
0: yeah. Yeah yeah. receive exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Please. Sorry. Oh sorry. Let's talk you and then Sandra gets the microphone. You have the mic and then Sandra. Okay. I was going to say thank you. You see, this mic is not for me. This is for you. I get what you're saying, but there's so many others that don't. So I'm grateful if you have the patience to wait till the mic is with you and then you speak with the mic.
12: Um, So Anata, I feel like, is um, applicable always. But um, uh, to create spaciousness, I think that goes along with what she was saying about being open. But um, I also think there's a... We can learn to be mindful in a way to inhibit our natural reactions to things, or our personal reactions to things, so that um, you know it's kind of I guess a metaphor would be something like um, if someone's belief is going to like cannonball, you know, a cannonball, a cannonball into you, or if someone's belief is going to be kind of like a no splash dive into you, you know, or like you know those sleep master beds where you can you can bounce on it but the wine glass won't spill, like sort of like that.
0: So, you've lost me there okay, so, okay. sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> right right we I, I need some translation sleep so, master beds yes yeah, so basically <laughs> I think it's a sleep number actually anyway so you can uh,
12: these beds right they show in the commercial they show some it's ridiculous they show some like woman in a bathing suit or something it's maybe not a bathing suit but a nightie or something bouncing on part of the bed but the mattress is so it's, like soft and forgiving that there's a wine glass at the other end of the mattress and it's not spilling so um, magic
0: yeah. Magic, isn't it?
12: <laughs> <laughs> right, so the idea that sort of like uh, someone's idea can bounce into you and it doesn't yeah. have to cause this accident. yep
0: yeah. yeah, 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 got it.
10: Thank you so much. I'm going to go get a mattress.
2: <laughs>
10: <laughs> Actually, what I'm, what I'm thinking of is sim- similar to what people are saying now. I think a virtue would be to be able to. Separate enough to come into the body and release any tension in the body because when Someone is saying something that I don't want to hear. I don't like I don't agree. However, it is the body starts to tighten up So uh-huh. the mind can say I'm going to pay attention but I think even taking a moment and Softening the lines us, softening the belly, you know yeah that that does make you a little more open to hear the other person in a real way, and the body is not ready to go to arms
0: you know uh-huh so how will we call that embodied listening or or yeah I think the key thing is there if we are confronted with a view that does oppose ours, or we feel that our view has been invalidated and some form, that goes together with some form of bodily discomfort. And it seems to be that before we're willing to be with that body, we need to be willing with discomfort in that body, isn't it? That's what generally pulls us out. If something is disagreeable, we move, we shift away with our attention, probably mentalizing at that moment, and going into um, a warfare mode, or at least hardening, I would expect. And your suggestion, if I understand you correctly, is to consciously slow down, go into the body, and be with whatever discomfort, or with whatever tightening there may be. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. Shifting awareness into body. Yeah. And... Um,
13: Uh-huh. More yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of mind and body not Didn't catch you, sorry. Interdependence of mind and body. I think it's like
0: How could we turn that into a practical reflection or into a virtue? That would be my question. You know, I can agree or I can disagree with that statement, but I'm interested in the pragmatics now. What do I do when I feel grasping takes place? What do I do to minimize my chances of attaching to a view or to minimize my attachment when I have noticed there is attachment? That's what I'm interested. How can you translate what you've said into something I can actually do? I can either do as a reflection. I
7: think what Sandra was saying is pay attention to your body state. That's something you can make an effort to. Leave. Yeah,
0: good. Let's put that down. Body awareness. No, just pay attention to body. Yeah. Body yeah. Thank you.
2: I was going to also say to take a drink because I really appreciate what's being said, and that I know if somebody is saying something that is, I'm, I'm feel like I'm being bombarded physically, like the examples before of somebody's opinion. So I can feel myself, as Sandra said, just get tense and physically tense. So at that moment to just take a a really deep breath. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just be able to be present to hear what you're saying.
0: So unclutch, take a deep breath. As a strategy, maybe on the reflection or, yeah? yeah it's good you know it's valid I mean
2: it's it's you know about Tik
0: Natan's famous take three breaths before you answer the telephone Exactly, this kind of thing yeah yeah
4: Yeah.
2: I'm with that
13: yeah good ask yourself uh, I think this would be under reflections what am I afraid of giving up ah or what am I afraid I won't get if I see the other point tell us more well, in other words, usually what, what causes a reaction, like a blockage of, of not yeah. listening, is you're afraid you won't get what you want, yeah. or you're yeah. afraid you'll lose what you have.
0: Okay, yeah, good, good. Would you write those questions down? This is, this is good stuff. Yeah, yeah. What am I afraid of giving up? Uh, what am I afraid of not getting? And what am I afraid of being having taken away? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay.
14: I, um, this, this all
0: connects with uh, You need to speak into the thing.
14: Oh, this all connects with one of the original comments. And I find that uh, when I do meta, which somebody else brought up, the whole string, you know, and I come to the one where joy in other people's success, especially when I started that, I had a very hard time with it, yeah. like a real resistance. That's that body resistance, and uh, so. But I continued to do it <laughs> because I, you know, just trust in the practice; it'll work eventually. Yeah. And I, I find that um, when I uh, this whole idea of appreciating what somebody else is saying has to do with uh, joy in their success for me. So it's appreciative joy or whatever that's called. Mm-hmm.
0: Mudita, yeah.
14: Yeah, that for me is what connects that. And, but also the body feeling and, and to feel one's resistance to, to get there.
0: Let me see whether I get you there. You suggest to actively feel joy at other people having other views than I have rather than perceiving that as a threat to, my, to the validity of my view. Yeah, it seems a lofty, it seems a lofty goal, isn't it? Because um, if I am attached then I am likely to be threatened if you disagree with me. And at that moment to feel joy and say the vitality of your expression (laughs) seems a lofty (laughs) seems a lofty virtue to me. It seems a rather kind of progressed stage of practice to me. uh, Yeah. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I can see that of a willingness to be fascinated by people beyond you <laughs> them agreeing with me <laughs>
7: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah 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 good good two more and then we we'll finish so uh, i was would... mhm yeah so got it because the relationship with this person is more important than mm-hmm. than everything else that would be yeah. happening and that very effect. good Connecting with the overarching value, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, this is an utterly stupid opinion she has, but she is the love of my life, isn't she? <laughs>
11: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what does that say about me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's two things I would like to add. Mm. One is. Um, I think the acknowledgement that all vitality comes from diversity. Yeah. Did, I have lived in communities, I have lived in institutions, I have lived in collectives, I've lived in family and I, I see that the vitality of any one of these organisms comes from the, it being populated by very different people with different takes, different gifts, and obviously different opinions. And the more streamlined I have managed to make my life, the more boring it has become, You know, the more stale. If you find yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by people who hold the same opinion like you do, um, I think this is sad. You should move. You, know, you should run, in fact. Um, I believe that much of vitality comes through, you know cross-fertilization, through synchronicities, through enzymatic activities that can only come from th- things and people who are not the same. And the richness that comes out of that is, uh, is, is unquestionable in my experience. But that richness often (laughs) demands a lot of holding capacity. If you've ever tried to run something on a a sort of basic democratic level that has more than seven people, you know that you will never get consensus. I've lived for many years of my life as a monastic. And one of the key terms in monastic discipline um, is not that you're being ruled by your abbot you know, there are no abbots in the Pali Canon, just to be clear. You know, this is a Western invention. Um, the governing principle of monastic life as envisaged by the Buddha is unanimity. Yeah. And if you try to be unanimous with, with, with any, any number of people, it's difficult even to be unanimous with oneself, but with others. and. Uh, the, the more the number increases, it is very unlikely that you're unanimous. Yeah? And if you try to obtain unanimity, you need to discuss. You need to hash out things. You need to really do hard work. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes a lot of patience. If you've ever done any such living in a community, then you will know that such a decision... Um, behind which most of your community stands is hard won so it's one thing to kind of relish in diversity as a theory yeah? we're all different, it's lovely, it's rich it's fertile, it's fermenting yeah? uh, if you actually want to do business with that beautiful richness, it's hard work yeah? and the willingness to put up with that work the willingness not to go into governing principles of majority dominance, <laughs> or just, I know better. Why don't you shut up? Uh, this is, takes a conscious and continuous effort to abstain from patterning uh, either decision-making procedures that favor the apparently most expert or the most competent. Or just go your own way and say, I don't have anything to do with this lot anymore. I just have my sweet own will and live out there in the woods, you know. So it takes a lot of work and willingness to do that kind of thing as an appreciative act of diversity when we do business. And that, I think that, for me, is a virtue there. Uh, that, by definition, Holds the willingness to live with, hold, and negotiate the views of others who not necessarily agree with mine. Um, another one, I think, is the, the virtue of investigation. Just the willingness to be not sure. Yeah? The willingness to hold uncertainty. Uh, the willingness to ask questions that seem apparently already cl- clear. We are working our way down the list of forms of grasping, attachment to and identification with. The next one is a big one. It's called Sila Vata Upadana The Grasping uh, Attachment and Identification with Virtue Practices Techniques. The Buddhist tradition again is somewhat candid about the interpretation of this. We are told by the commentaries that this is particularly the practices and the rituals of the non-Buddhist people who are here the basis of such grasping. But if you're familiar with the Buddhist teaching, you will notice that the two terms, sila and vata, that are combined with upadana, they generally have positive connotations in Buddhist teachings. Sila is virtue, has very positive connotations. Vata is very little known, but it basically means it's a religious observance. It is something that we do and It is part of a religious observance. Both of these terms, I could uh, give you many accounts of how they are rated positively in Buddhist teaching. Here, in combination with the term upadana, grasping, they are rated as a form of grasping and clinging. And uh, practical experience teaches us that we are particularly prone to grasp at and to cling to and identify with things that have been useful to us. So any realistic attempt to come to terms with that teaching here will bring us not to um, what other people grasp at over there, what we know to be a strange little custom that has no bearing on reality or on liberation, but It is a teaching that asks us starkly to investigate how we hold the things that we believe to be helpful and how we attach to those things and how we identify with those things. Spiritual practitioners are by no means exempt from that temptation to grasp at the things they find useful. Again, the story that we would like to share with what has been helpful to us is is easy to understand. We have felt that this particular meditation technique has been useful to us, this particular teaching has been useful, this diet, this exercise, this um, form of self-improvement and obviously we would like to share that. Who hasn't been foisted upon some house remedies by other people after having uh, heedlessly Declared himself to be the victim of certain symptoms, and suddenly be swamped with good advice from all, you know, from Aunt Emily downwards to Aunt Emily's and uh, children, who would like to try out their house remedy on us. Uh, we know that. That is not generally the problem. The problem is when we identify with a particular brand of activity. We could call it an approach, a method, a uh, technique. And the belief that goes with this is that knowing the right technique gives me a superior position, it creates safety for me, and creates the guarantee that I'm doing it properly, that I'm. I have the skill and I have the method to make, to make it good. Yeah. All such confidence basically turns into a denial of the three hallmarks of existence. I believe I have the right method so I am no longer subject to impermanence, I am no longer subject to suffering, I am no longer subject to impersonality. Any form of conceit, any form of view, any form of activity of grasping has the appeal that old magic has. That old magic says, because I know something or because I have a method of something, I am no longer subject to laws. I am no longer subject to what what you are most afraid of. Change, uncertainty, death, illness, loss, unhappiness. So one of the reasons why we grasp things is because they have done us good, and then we like to convince others, and then we identify with being one of the people who does this. Uh, Amongst meditators, this may sound like Well, he's quite a nice guy, but he doesn't meditate enough. He's quite a nice guy, but he's never really done long retreats.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, he's really amazing being, but he's never really been out to Asia, you know, he's never. Yeah. Yeah, very smart, but he's not a vegetarian, you know. He can't be serious about spiritual practice unless he's willing up to, you know give up his stakes. So there are many forms of this. Because we have decided to become a vegetarian, go to Asia, follow mahasisaito's techniques, or not follow mahasisaito's techniques, um, we uh, have chosen a particular path, a particular method, a particular angle of practice, which has given us great benefit, which we want to continue pursuing. And from being a helpful thing, we have found in our own practice, it becomes um, basically helpful for other people. You know? Some of them obviously know. Some of them don't know yet, although it is definitely helpful. It would be helpful for them if they only stopped denying this. You know. And after a while, it becomes the only helpful thing. You, know, you can't really be serious about... I remember years ago when I was living in England, people fighting against fox hunts. Yeah? Fox hunts, a big bloody ritual. A bunch you know, of dogs, which you're not supposed to call dogs, which are called hounds, uh, are chasing a poor little fox. People with bugles on horses and in uniforms after having taken a good swig that morning are, are chasing their hounds after that little poor Fox who can't even hide because a couple of days before that, a few underlings have filled all the foxholes, so the poor fox can't hide and gets then caught by these hounds and ripped to pieces, which is a very great sport, yeah, really. So there's many people who have felt fox hunting is a barbarian ritual which you know a cultivated nation as the United Kingdom should give up and so forth. Um, so many people have been out there sabotaging fox hunts. You know, you can do all kinds of things. You you can make noise so that the dogs get distracted, or you can put out things uh, which the delicate dogs' noses go all confused. I think I forgot what it was. Any seed is something which really gets them. I think, um, and then. Apparently the dog is, you know, the, the, the fox is saved and the hounds are confused and you've done a good thing there for world peace and for vegetarianism and for the cultivation of an old nation and you've saved animals and you feel really good about yourself. So, so there's a guy coming to visit us, monastery, and um, learned about the principle of ahimsa, harmlessness in the monasteries and felt this was a very good thing but why why aren't we not out there with him sabotaging the next fox hunt because you know if you're serious about harmlessness then the only sensible thing to do you know was obviously to go out there and stop this bloody barbarian ritual so that will be an example of having adopted a particular method or practice and making that method or practice quasi the sole criterion for uh... A virtue, in this case, harmlessness, ahimsa. So sometimes we we become a little bit like that when we have found benefit in our particular approach, diet, exercise, meditation, our therapist, what whatever you may find uh, has given you great benefit, and then we claim that this has an exclusive power of liberating us. And people who don't want to admit this are just Plain deluded, you know. The world is full of ignorant, deluded people. So we have to basically convince them. We need to convince them of the value of our method, technique, our approach, our particular way of going about something. And then at that stage, I think we can safely say this is a case of silovato padana. Psychologically, this is easy to understand, having the confidence that we know what to do is something I find very, very appealing. Uh, In the view of uh, much confusion of all too documented helplessness and um, chaos and many things going wrong, you know, you try to save the dolphins here and they're going to do in the ice bears over there and in the meantime they melt down the polar caps and you're trying to get equal rights going on all continents. You know, this dies off and that dies off and there is this injustice. So many things can go wrong and to have a method that gives me the confidence that I know what to do is, is very attractive to me. Yeah. I know how to keep out of trouble or I know how to deal with trouble or I know how to find people who solve my problems. <laughs> you know, Having the confidence to know what to do is greatly appealing to me. I don't know how it is for you. And I suspect that is the basis, the psychological basis for grasping at techniques is gaining conviction, staving off doubt, staving off uncertainty, staving off helplessness, paralysis, and uh, the feeling things are going wrong in a big way. And it is the aggrandizement of personal benefit into a universal Salvatory means. Yeah. So, I'd like you to kind of ponder this for a moment with each other, huddle together in your whisper groups. Um, again, preferably not the same people as before, and consider: Have I experience of this? Is this something I have either met in my own mind or I have encountered when being with others? Have I been uh, assailed by? Other people in their attempts to convince me of their particular method technique. Let's look at a few uh, terms. I've written down a few terms. So it could be a ritual, it could be an observance, it could be a method, a technique, a principle, a system, an approach, a practice. Yeah, any of this. The history of these things are very very old. Yeah, they have its roots in magic. Magic works. You see? Simple forms of magic is sitting there in your cave and feeling assaulted by an inner state. And then you paint, you scratch your demon on the walls of your cave. And suddenly you notice having put that demon out there, given him maybe a name and the face makes that demon less powerful. Because you have, by a magic of giving a name and the face, you have exerted your power on that demon. That demon has less power now because it is exteriorized. It is on the outside. You have given it a name. You have given it a face. Suddenly, that demon seems to shrivel. Still there, still unpleasant, still not a nice state, but it is no longer omnipotent because you have given it a name and a face by the technique of putting it outside. That's how things began. Developmental psychologically, we, have, we, we give great weight to th- anything that helps us modulate our fear. Yeah? That's one of the greatest learning incentives. If you look at the evolution, evolutionary psychology, is the stuff that helps us to cope with flooding emotions. So the techniques that I resort to when I have to negotiate overwhelming states, generally of fear, anxiety... Um, a little later it 's rage, uh, maybe even later it may be doubt or depression, but fear is definitely the first. Everything that helps me overcome fear, I will definitely hold in good memory. So we have good reasons to to be fond and to treasure the things that have helped us. This is not about denying the value of this, but grasping at an identification with uh, makes something out of what has been genuinely helpful. Suddenly I join a group of Mahasi meditators or of vegans or of, uh, you know, fox hunt saboteurs or you know, and I derive some form of identity beyond the immediate use this has had in my life. And that identity taken out thereof, or that grasping at the, not just the necessity or the usefulness there, but the indispensability of this particular method yeah, uh, is, I think, a risk and a source of suffering when we meet other people who do not share this. So please, yeah. Yeah, it's something you do. The other one is something you know. You're not even asked to believe to, to, to put it into practice. This here is stuff you've actually put into practice. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I would like to call on your experience and intelligence um, and list with you to, together a few things that may help with forms of grasping and identification with methods, approaches. Um, I think the, the issue is quite pertinent. It is obvious wherever people are committed, wherever people have the industry and have the uh, energy to engage with practices and methods, um, they will probably find things that are useful. And at the same time, they will sooner or later run into the danger of possibly identifying with those very practices in some form that is not just useful, but that is actually downright detrimental. So, what could help with that? Yeah, please. Integration, for one thing.
5: It's like the, the... Integration? Yeah, it's like the, the parallel of uh, the, the old parable of the elephant and the ah. blind man. People, people seeing one part of the story and saying, this is the whole story. In my field, uh, which is psychotherapy, it's rife. I mean, my whole adult life has been besieged by this kind of uh, factionalism, that my way is the right way. And in particular, in gestalt therapy, which I was trained in, there's an East Coast and a West Coast faction. Mm -hmm. The East Coast says it's a talk therapy, it's philosophical, we have to look at the phenomenologists, and it's more closely related to contemporary psychoanalysis and the west coast says no Gestalt therapy is the body it's uh it's lose your mind and come to your senses forget this intellectual stuff hmm. now they both have merit and so when i say integration i mean seeing hmm. the merit of of okay. the difference and trying to integrate okay. and bring them into some uh, usefulness with each other
0: okay Let's kind of reframe it as a, as a virtue, because that's t- you're speaking of a virtue there, isn't it? Integration sounds kind of neat, but it's too short, isn't it? What It's the, it's the end result of what you actually describe. It is, uh, can I take you on seeing the merit of the other? Yeah? That seems to be more like the virtue, which may f- come to fruition as integration, isn't it? But you could... Take out the Gestalt in there, and you could just do, you know, Northern and Southern Baptists, or you could just fill in anything. In Theravada fact, I can,
5: Mahayana.
0: Uh, just stay with the Theravadins. You know, I could give you in the Suttas quotes where you can see that factionalism happening already in the lifetime of the Buddha. There's a beautiful little passage somewhere in the Anguttara where the Buddha says, "You know, some people develop." And one has the feeling he's he has a placating voice in that moment, you know. Some people develop vipassana before they develop samatha. Some people develop samatha before they develop vipassana, and some people develop them both together. Yeah, and you can all too easily imagine the situation in which such a statement would have been necessary. You know, you can sit in one corner the vipassana yanikas and another corner samatha yanikas, who kind of. Uh, are at loggerheads with each other, who are trying to make out of one single teaching and one, of one single practice a kind of two um, mutually exclusive and hostile techniques <laughs> that, that you can find very early on. So thank you for your example. Good. Other voices, please. Yes.
2: Um, I guess this would be a reflection just seeing how painful it is to be attached to um, in my case sort of selling a method to somebody else and then I'm for the rest of my life I'm hooked into whether that person does well on that method it's a disaster <laughs> it's true so and just feeling that It doesn't take very many experiences of it to say, it's not worth it. It's too
0: painful. Yeah, it's an interesting reflection, isn't it? So, given you're a teacher, isn't it? And you happen to be, have found genuine usefulness in one particular approach, you wholeheartedly proselytize that approach to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You have then moved on and you see what people do with your uh, with the adopted conviction of yours and you see what it results in yeah okay or see that they
2: try it and don't like it Mm mm-hmm
0: Yeah, me as a teacher, has it worked for me or was this just an illusion or... Right, right,
2: right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
7: yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good point, yeah. Recognizing the pain of a sort of one set of opinions and one set of tools that should do every job, yeah. Other voices, please, yeah.
4: I have the experience of being in a sangha and there are a couple people who come from other traditions and they're very uh, attached and very they sort of position themselves as teachers Mm. to the sangha I'm in and I, I, I guess there's two sides of this one is that I would like to see their humility but I also recognize I need to practice the humility on my and as well, because I'm getting kind of stirred up by their teacherness, mm. you know so it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a humility and openness that is needed, probably on both ends, but I'll just speak for myself.
0: So you recognized your attachment to a particularly um, To a kind of grassroots levels approach, where you shouldn't be imposed teachers, or at the same time, you you know that just because you're not flawless on that count, that doesn't exempt them from having a few flaws themselves in their teacher approach, isn't it? Yeah, that's a painful one. You know, if you can see your own kind of impurity in there. But, you know, that doesn't really justify their impurity, <laughs> isn't it? You know, are you going to back go, go to your cushion and wait till it's over? You know, till I've cleared up my mess? Or will I will I be pointing fingers at them before I'm quite finished with my business? Yeah, this is a, this is a difficult one. And there's no easy answers. You know, just go back to your cushion and... Work with your anger till you're completely beyond anger and let the injustices around you take place because you might fear that some of those injustices may trigger a little bit of anger in your un- unliberated heart. It doesn't really seem an option, you know. It's not. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's difficult. One loses credibility, isn't it, if one isn't clean? in one's, say, statements or in naming things. Difficult choices, difficult choices. But I hear a call for humility. Or um, is, well, you have this lovely distinction in English between humbleness and humility, isn't it? That's not the same. I,
4: I, I would defer to others on that. There, there is a quality... Yeah. They have a they
0: are to be humble To be humbled by somebody's grandeur is not the same as being humiliated by <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if I understand that So I understand you probably mean to mean more humbleness, isn't it? In 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 how we hold roles or how we hold experiences or you know. Can we write that down? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Other voices, please.
7: Close to the mic. Um, I was thinking healthy skepticism, uh-huh. um, and I say healthy because I know I can make skepticism into a religion or a virtue, um, which I'm just back in the same trap. But the idea of, I mean, for me, the way it, it's evolved concretely is I know there have been lots of times I've been certain and found out I was wrong. So I, when I feel certain, I just remind myself of that. Um,
0: Often wrong, never in doubt. Isn't
10: it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah. But it's really it's kind of self-challenging um, and questioning, and I think that's good. Although I also see in myself that can become obsessive sometimes, and that's not helpful either. But to wonder about the accuracy of my position um, and not assume I'm certain, knowing I could be wrong. I mean, it's sort
0: of... Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very powerful reflection. Um, that where you feel most certain, actually, leave a little corner out there and say, "I could be wrong, even though I feel very, very damn sure this is right." But it, I could be wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
13: But there is a difference between informing somebody of your viewpoint and pushing somebody into your viewpoint.
0: Yeah yeah. We're speaking of grasping, yeah? Right. Grasping would come up as you identify yourself as being one of those and she is one of the others. Yeah. You would suspect that You know, she's quite likely enlightened, but basically, because she's doing Mahayana Buddhism, that doesn't count. Okay?
13: Well, I it's friend. kind of
0: like this you know, you have this kind of. Um, you bracket whatever she has to say, not on the basis of the validity of what she says or what she does or what she teaches, but because she is not of the sort you have decided is doing the right thing. She's not even worth listening to or even if she, okay, is worth listening to only with one ear, you know, but let's not get confused. We're still doing the right thing. Whatever they say. This is the sort of grasping. The creating of another. The creation of another. A one that is not like mine, not like ours,
13: not the right one. But as reflection, like for example, I may be a Buddhist, but I have a friend who I discussed this with. And what I did with her is I brought her to a meditation by Sharon because what I really wanted to do was to reduce stress. Mm -hmm. So if if you can, like in a reflection, bring somebody to your point of view by showing a positive aspect rather than by grasping at them and making a difference. So sharing rather than showing.
0: Yeah, and that I- doesn't sound like much grasping if you, you, know, if you introduce somebody to Maybe something.
13: What I'm saying is you can reflect, am I doing that? You know, In other words, when you mm-hmm. feel you yeah. might be grasping, yeah. you can do a reflection on how can I show rather than push.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, the closer people are, the more we would like them to hold our views, do our practices, and... Uh, Share our convictions, isn't it? You know, we're quite happy to know that there is people out there who, whom we'll never convince. You know, Hannah Arendt once said, um, in a late interview, you know, it was never a, it, it was never a big shock to us that uh, there were people that you know that. that held anti-Semitic judgment. You know, we, we always knew they were there. The shock was that our friends started moving away from us. That was the shock. It wasn't the f- that, that there were Nazis out there and people hate, hateful people out there. We've always known that. The shock The shock is not the others. The shock is if the apparent own sort begins to move away from you. Yeah. That's the pain where we feel the grasping most closely of people whom we like, you know, um, don't stop doing the things we think they should have stopped long ago. Yeah? If they only loved us, they would have stopped doing that for us. Or they would have adopted our approach or our superior way of living. Uh, it's, that's where it shows. It's at close range, not the distant ones. Other thoughts, please. Back to you. Yes. Sarah? Sarah?
9: Parenting might be a good um, area for this I know that in, in my experience I've went went through periods where I felt oh you know the praxis would you know solve all your problems or you know if you do it this way that's with one son and the other son is is a philosopher you know a professional philosopher and I think that um, many teachers and you know I think well you know why you know you know can't can he see this you know point of view not that I not that I've you know attempted to to um, get him to embrace this point of view but it's um, or the virtues of, of practice but they have a they have a um, to children and, and um, we've often thought that wouldn't it be nice to take um, our granddaughter to Spirit Rock's um, family to do a family retreat but I I really think that probably it wouldn't go over too well with my daughter-in-law so I don't know
0: well you know there's genuine this sounds like an acknowledged pain you know, this doesn't sound like overt grasping. But still, they may, you know, since you value this, you, you would ish, wish other people to share in that. And there is, even without overt uh, missionary uh, approaches, there's still a pain in this. Yeah? How could we phrase that as a virtue or as a reflection? What do you think? What do you suggest?
9: Well, um, slightly different. I, um, with one, son, he. he um, I don't know. I'm getting a little mixed up with between the views and the techniques. Practice. Yeah, techniques. Um, I don't know. I, the techniques would be. I mean, from a personal point of view, is one form of practice and another, but.
0: With the two examples of the kids, I I'm not quite sure I would handle that. Um. I guess one way uh, I could see a reflection there is just to acknowledge that pain, you know. Mm-hmm. To acknowledge that something I value and I would like my close ones to share into and just to acknowledge that pain is something that speaks against grasping, isn't it? It hurts at the bottom bottom line of grasping is always some form of hurt. Just to acknowledge the pain that there is in holding the superiority of my technique or my method or my approach. Yeah.
9: And being accepted, I think, by them for yeah. having that. And that's where the demonstration okay. is.
0: I think. You
9: know, and that's part of, I think that's part of the pain. I think... Um, uh-huh. I think perhaps not quite so much still but I think our older son thinks you know we're a little odd. Uh-huh. In practice. And I'd like more. I'd like more. Yeah. To be recognized.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Other voices things that help with grasping at techniques and service just some ideas. Yeah, please. Maybe them.
2: I was thinking. Uh, I have a friend who um, has addictive behavior, and um, so I made a suggestion. Right. And so I made a suggestion once, let go. But then it oftentimes, well, I really didn't let go because oftentimes conversation, I find myself going she, she, she. And then when I find myself pointing a lot, verbally or physically, the, I pause and I reflect, okay, so what's, what is my relationship to this? And, um, and I say to myself, you know, she has her own, her own journey. Mm-hmm. they have their own higher power it's not all about me and what I think she should do it's about me and my relationship to what she does so that's my reflection when, when I feel like mm-hmm. I'm grasping at the perfect way to get somebody out of whatever trouble they're in
0: yeah yeah. I think this is very true acknowledging what the practice is, is not convincing her that she does what i think she should do <laughs> my practice is relating to what she does and how she is isn't it and what that does to me the what you do have together not on the basis of what you don't have. okay I don't know what do. well uh, let me try What I hear you saying is basically that you connect to the value underneath of what looks that they do differently. Because you probably share the value. But you may not share the approach, how she manifests or enacts or practices to make that value more tangible. But you probably share that value. And rather than focusing your attention on the difference of practice and method, you focus on the similarity of what you sense underneath her different practice. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Maybe we could write down there uh, affirming uh, shared values on the virtue. Yeah. This is.
10: Um, yeah? I'm just thinking about what kept coming up is that it's, it, for me it revolves around. What I might see as suffering, and that I want to fix it. Uh huh. So if if my techniques or my rituals or my um, my practices have been useful for me, then maybe they're useful for you, and vice versa. When it's imposed on me, it usually comes from a place where. I might be perceived as suffering. So somebody's going to impose their rituals onto me as a way of repairing or fixing something that could be broken. Yep. I mean, that's, I don't know how to put that into a concise word either, other than maybe that is, I don't know if it's empathy or... But to be aware of maybe letting somebody go through their own process of healing that and I to, think that's maybe a key to phrase s- to here. stay quiet perhaps.
0: Uh, I think allowing somebody to go through his or her own process yeah? considering how complicated your learning has been or yeah, through how many curves you have meandered before you arrived at that to actually allow somebody his or her own process is, is a powerful reflection uh, thank you
6: isn't what um... Jean Marie and Dalila were talking about equanimity? Like, as much as I want happiness for you, you know, you have your own karma, and just my good wishes for you won't, or my advice certainly won't necessarily play that out. hmm And then the other thing that I reflect on is that, I mean, it's what Dalila said about we each have our own journey that. You know the kinds of practices that I do might not be right for everybody.
0: Yeah, there is a, a quality of equanimity in there, isn't it? If you, some of you may know the image, the commentaries use for equanimity. Um, the fourth of the Brahmaviharas, you know, they all have mother images. These Brahmaviharas, and the fourth one for equanimity is that of a mother who has to let her adolescent child make his or her own choices. You know, The mother still knows better. Uh, the mother is still uh, very keen on the well-being of her, of her kid. At the same time, she knows, despite knowing better, she must let her child make his or her own decisions. Even though she would maybe make better decisions, <laughs> that act would be disempowering. So she must trust that the child even though making wrong decisions, will have the resources to learn from this. Yeah. So this is a kind of an equanimity where it says, it's not about me just being more right, it is about you having to find out what is right, or what is useful, or what is important. And I cannot, I cannot preempt this learning process by telling you the answer. Um, Consider, you know, we all have different histories. We have different histories, even psychologically. And, you know, if you worked with people, you know that people can look... You know, what is a charming little stimulation for the ones is an absolute overwhelm for the other. It doesn't say anything objectively about what has happened. (laughs) It just says something about the subjective, receptive field of that experience. If you add onto that a karmic dimension, which, has, you know which brings us, gives us a backlog of, of personalized history that comes from a longer distance than just psychological biography, which is already quite different, then you may really see that human beings need different teachings, need different practices, need different approaches, need, you know. And a teacher, if he's authentic or she's authentic, then he or she will tell you what he or she knows about. This may not be what you need. In fact, it is your, the onus is on you to find out that this is the right teacher, for, for you or not. The onus is not on the teacher. You have to figure out whether this is a guy who has something to say to you, whether you resemble this person, whether this person gets you when he or she speaks with you. The onus is on you, and that discernment, nobody can take that responsibility away. So. We have differing histories and to just acknowledge that because this has helped me, it may not be the panacea, I believe it to <laughs> me. You may need something else.
6: And before I pass the mic, you know, I think also it, I might need something else. <laughs> you know, if I'm just stuck clinging, grasping to some particular practice or technique. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I might need something. Else. It
0: has been good yeah. for me. It worked, yeah. but by now I need something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah Very true. Yeah. Thank you, <laughs> Elaine.
6: Um, I I was hearing equanimity too, but I was also. I, I am such a crazy proselytizer for Buddhism, and I need to be stopped. But <laughs> but every now and then, I mean, I realize. There are people out there who don't know anything about Buddhism who are happy and leading good lives. And it's disgusting, sick, isn't and it? Yeah. They're, <laughs> and they're kind and they're productive and they're doing things to make the world better and they don't need this.
7: You know? So I should just oh, God.
10: keep my mouth <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, I, I get you. <laughs> Uh.
5: so this is i 'm also a teacher, and um, one of the things I figured out the method is for example, that people learn languages in many, many different ways, and if you come to them with one method, you leave out half of them they they won 't learn really well so so the the method that I embrace is. That you have to bring to a class a lot of different approaches and a lot of richness, so that everyone finds mm-hmm. what they do. Now, my question is: Is that? Am I grasping to that? Because I also think that that is the method. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. Yeah, maybe
0: you're grasping at it. You know. As a, as, a, as a pupil, I have I've been struck that those teachers that stand out in my memory are the teachers that loved the stuff they did. That's what got me, really. That's what was the most infectious. That was the most motivating. Obviously, I have picked up techniques, and I was very grateful for certain methods in learning this or in learning that. But the most inspiring and the most stimulating <laughs> Teachers, there aren't that many to be honest, yeah? <laughs> if I go back to my schooling days, are, were the ones, were two people who stand out because I, they were both quite cr- crazy in their own ways, uh, unreasonable, you know, and yet I was fascinated by their love for what they did. They were passionate about what they did. They weren't Reasonable. They weren't always successful in what they did. They were demanding. Uh, they were um, hi- highly challenging in their behavior. And yet, I had never a moment's doubts that they really believed in what they were peddling. Yeah. The stuff they were preoccupied with and were passionate about was really close to their hearts. I knew that even when they went home. And that has been the most touching and the most stimulating and the most enlivening my learning. More than the offer of their techniques or methods or their particular knowledge or just their sheer dedication to that and their sheer unreasonable passion for something. And made what could potentially be a deadening branch of learning, you know, a fascinating pursuit of self-discovery or something like that. I guess about Buddhism, you know, let's not be passionate about Buddhism. Let's let's be passionate about what the Buddha was passionate about because that's much more important. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He wasn't even a Theravadan, to be honest with you. He uh, He was a seeker. And he was—he um, was doing things that were difficult. He was doing things that were unreasonable. He was doing things against better knowledge. He was doing things nobody told him. Uh, at one stage in his career, you know, he was thirty-five. He had given up everything what he what could have been given up, and he was nowhere. Yeah, and he was rescued by the memory of a childhood experience. Yeah, remember that. He, he remembered how he was under the rose apple tree, finding into his first jhana experience. Yeah. And that's a memory that he had after his five friends had left him, after he had found out that fasting is not the way to happiness, after he had turned down the teaching job in two different uh, Upanishadic and Brahminical schools. Yeah. Uh, after he had left his wife and child and his royal family and his potential career as a governor's son, after he had left all that, basically the man at age 35 with nothing in his hands was saved by a memory he has recalled from being a little child. Yeah? How he, under that rose apple tree, was slightly aloof from the, from the crowd who was probably doing some Brahminical festival, entered a jhana state. And that conditions that led to that state is what he tried replicating maybe 30 years later. And that is what was a formative turn in his experience. And I am sure you understand that this man cannot have felt great when he had that experience. He was probably at the lowest point in his career. He had given up more than most people give up and he had nothing in his hands. And the powerful experience that was to come shortly afterwards needed him to hit rock bottom there. He needed to be at his wit's end. He needed to have exhausted all he could exhaust by willful exertion, by giving up, by practice. He needed that moment for a change to occur in his life, in his approach, a change that finally made awakening possible. So, meeting our own helplessness is something that uh, is is an unpleasant experience. And this is probably what this type of grasping tries to avoid. And yet, it is probably meeting your confusion and your ignorance and your helplessness most closely that bears... The chances for a wisdom to arise that that is truly helpful that is truly transcendent yeah. I see that in the life of the Buddha, I see that in the life of practitioners it 's people who hit you know hit the pits in some way and come back to tell the story or know after such an experience what helps what truly helps in their lives yeah. they, they know what something is worth because they have seen their own abyss they've met their own uh, you know the the pitch black corner in their hearts or so and obviously the, the theory of good practice is that we never go there that we understand we take things on board and from then in a linear form of progression we gradually make our way up through the various forms of equanimity into perfect awakening that is not what it seems to be working like for most people I see yeah. most of us need to get in touch with our pain our ignorance our despair our helplessness before something transformative takes place this is not good news but in some ways it, it is uh, I hope this. you understand this is an encouragement to not be afraid of the abyss not be afraid of the insurmountable, not be afraid of the incertitude, not be afraid of the apparent obstacle to your practice. My trust in the investigation of these forms of grasping is based very clearly on the experience that meeting our own practical forms of ignorance is what is most motivating to give up these forms of ignorance. It is not the inspiration and the goodwill that gets us out of the mud. I can assure you, it is the sober acknowledgement that what we do is more painful than it gives us happiness. That leads us to giving up what we do to create that pain. Please.
6: I'm very glad you said this because uh, I feel like this whole discussion has been sort of uh, decontextualizing practice from culture, and I think the people who, and if we don't acknowledge that, you know we're living in a hetero-patriarchal, white supremacist, late capitalist culture. The people who adopt those practices of of maintaining that culture, they don't grasp that practice, right? They They aren't grasping those practices because that's what it is, right? Maintaining that culture is their
9: practice.
6: It's those of us who have a liberatory practice who actually grasp on our practice because it's very important to us to have those liberatory practices.
0: You have always more grasping if you come from a minority point or if you come from a, the, the inferior position, the, the tendency to grasp is, is bigger because you, you need the kind of conspiratorial feel. You, you know yourself to be outnumbered and you're more likely to identify with the kind of conspiratorial feel. Um, the grasping of the majority also happens, but it is less obvious because they obviously <laughs> there, there's more of them. <laughs> you know? I think they view it as grasping. <laughs> that was, no this is <laughs> the way things <laughs> are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's exactly how my grasping also talks. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that there's more of them, you know. <laughs> and they will be have they will be having less challenges along the way. <laughs> yeah.